We're going to look at Exodus chapter 3, verses 17 through 22, and then we're going to look at Exodus chapter 12. So two passages. The first passage is going to give us context to the second passage. In the first passage, you have God speaking to Moses, helping to define what deliverance is going to look like for the people of Israel. In the second passage, it's the definition of what new life is going to look like for the people, people of Israel. Exodus chapter 3, verses 17 through 22. The title of the sermon is, Goodbye and Hello. So I said I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanite and the Hittite and the Amorite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite to a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will pay heed to what you say. And you with the elders of Israel will come to the king of Egypt and you will say to him, him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. So now, please, let us go three days' journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Verse 19. But I know that the king of Egypt will not permit you to go except under compulsion. So I will stretch out my hand and will strike Egypt with my, all my miracles, which I shall do in the midst of it. And after that, he will let you go. I will grant this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, and it shall be that when you go, you will not go out empty. But, verse 22, every woman shall ask of her neighbor and the woman who lives in her house articles of silver and articles of gold and clothing, and you will put them on your sons and daughters. Thus, you will plunder the Egyptians. Exodus 12, verses 1 and 2. Now the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be the beginning of months for you. It is to be the first month of the year to you. Lord, help us as we study. There are three things I want to talk to you about, and I'm going to combine some things. I think I was a little ambitious in my sermon prep this week, and uh, this sermon, if I preached it, would go into the next service, so I'm, I'm going to condense some things. One, I want to talk to you about the beginning of the end of things, and then the end of things, and then the beginning of things. The beginning of the end, the end, and then the beginning. The backdrop is that the people of Israel have become a people. Now, because we know the story from the end, and that we've read Genesis before, and we've read Exodus, and we've read the prophets, and the chron chronological books, and history books, historical books of Kings, and Samuel, and, and Chronicles. We've read these books, we understand them as the people of Israel. Remember, they were not that in the beginning. They were just a family. And this family was led by a man named Jacob, who had his name changed to Israel. And the way they wound up in Egypt was that there was a famine in the land of Canaan, the, the land in which Jacob and his family sojourned. Jacob's sons had been treacherous to one of, his, one of Jacob's other sons, Joseph, and had sold him into Egypt as a slave. They thought they were getting rid of him because they didn't like him. Well, it turns out that he became the prime minister of all of Egypt and the best administrator to the idea of what it meant to make sure that when there was a time of plenty, they saved enough resources for the time of famine. So much resource did they save, and Joseph was so good at it that the entire known world in that area would come to Egypt when the famine occurred. And one of those people was Jacob with his family. Jacob comes to Egypt. He meets his son again, 
who for the last 17 years he thought he had lost. And they begin to enjoy the resources of Egypt. It was supposed to be a quick trip. But because the famine lasted in the, in the land of Canaan longer than they thought, Joseph said, why don't you just stay here and abide in the land? And so Pharaoh, through Joseph, gave Jacob, his dad, a piece of property called Goshen. And they were allowed to live there. Seventy people came with, with Jacob. Seventy people in total. That's all there were. And in Goshen they stayed for a good period of time. Great provision, good piece of property, great weather. But it wasn't home. Don't let provision be the only sign that somehow God is really blessing you. Don't let it happen. His provision very well might be his mercy, not his approval. He cares about you a lot. Listen, I got seven kids. I do not base my provision on how happy I am with them. Some of them starve. I give them provision because that's my job and I love them. I'm not going to say you can't eat dinner because you don't make me happy today. So never mistake God's provision for his approval. Now the people of, 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 of Jacob, those 70, live there. But I'm not quite sure what happened whereby everybody thought it was a good idea to stay. Maybe the provision was so great they thought, why go back? This is really wonderful. We like this land. But if you stay long enough in a place that you're not supposed to, God has his ways of, of rustling the nest to, to, to remind you of where you're supposed to be. And generally, there's a lot of discomfort that comes with that. They stayed so long that they became a threat to the people of Egypt, whereby the, the king, Pharaoh, said, we need to do something about these people because they're so numerous that if another nation comes to attack us, they very well might ally with them and then come and fight against us while they're on the inside of us. So we need to make them our slaves rather than just cohabitants. And so they did. And they assigned taskmasters to these people and made them build their buildings and their temples and their governmental palaces. And, and now they realize, we stayed too long. We should have got out of Dodge when, it, when the getting was good. But we stayed too long and now we're slaves and we can't leave. And all of a sudden they, they begin to, to cry out. It's really a mark of maturity when you can talk to God on a regular basis when nothing's wrong. When you can relate to him, when everything is good. But when, when it's really bad, generally that's the time you're prompted to come to church. You're prompted to read your Bible. You're prompted, oh, I need to get more spiritual now. When times get tough, we find ourselves more in need of communicating with him. And I'm, I'm begging you, we all need to grow up in this respect. I make it a practice to do what I'm supposed to do every day and read my Bible and commune with my God, not just in the morning, but, but try to do it all day long. Relate to him. But there is no question that when tough times come, I, I think I need to fast. <laughs> I think I need to do just a little bit extra to find him better. 
So all of us have that response. I am not trying to be critical of you and think that somehow I'm a little bit better. No, no, no. We all fight, but we would do well to make sure that we are intently and intensely following him at every moment, especially when it's good. So we can be sensitive enough to not need the prompts of discomfort to remind us where he is and who we need to talk to. They cry out to him. They cry out so much that God has to get a reject. God has to pull somebody from the scrap heap of spiritual destiny because there's nobody else left. Pull Moses out of his depression thinking I'm never going to be worth anything to anybody and say, by the way, I'm recalling you. Well, I'm not interested. (laughs) I've done that already. Tried, failed. Thank you very much. I love my shepherding job out here in the wilderness. I've been here 40 years. I got a retirement plan. Me and the missus going down to Tampa. It's great. God says, no, no, no. I heard the cry of my people. Can't you send anybody else? Nope. Just you. And so Moses dialogues argues with God about going because he doesn't want to go. He's a reluctant deliverer. He gets along with the plan. He finally follows, but it's not because he wants to. And here we see God outlining to him the things that are going to happen so that he understands, don't be discouraged in the process. I'm going to send you to Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and, and you're going to talk to him. The first part of the process was he was sending Moses to his own people, to the Israelites. And he had to convince them that he was legit. Now that was the hardest part. Because these people had to align behind Moses and say he is our representative. Though we haven't seen him for 40 years. It was one of these, who are you? I mean, you were birthed from us, but you didn't even grow up with us. You grew up in Pharaoh's house. And then when you had an opportunity to feel yourself a little bit and think that you had some power to deliver, you blew it in such a way that you murdered one of your own guys and Pharaoh wanted to kill you. And then you left us. You didn't help us. out. You, you, you concerned yourself with your own life more than us. You left and you've been gone for 40 years, 80 years you've been alive and none of it have you used to help us. And now you're our deliverer. <laughs> Why should we trust you? Okay, Moses, put your hand in your cloak, bring him back out, leprous. Put it in, clean. Throw your staff down, becomes a snake. Pick it back up. Wow, it's a staff. These were signs not for Pharaoh. These were signs for the Israelites. Because Moses had no cred. He had no credibility at all with these people. They needed to know that supernaturally God had sent him. So he convinced the people of Israel. And even when they were convinced, they didn't like him. Because after they were convinced, he went to Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said basically, oh, y'all are lazy. You tell me to let your people go, it's because you're lazy. Now, build bricks without straw. You have to go get it. We usually would provide it for you, but now you have to go get it. To which all the Israelites came back to Moses and said, you call this help? Because they aren't allowing our quota of bricks to diminish, even though we have to now do double duty. We have to find the the straw and build the bricks. It never was that way before. And so you've made our life harder. Who are you again? 
This couldn't be God's pathway. So the Israelites needed these signs in order to help them understand that this dude was really sent from God. And so in that, then God encourages Moses in chapter 3, saying, now, when you go to Pharaoh, he's not going to want to let your people go. He's going to be resistant. And so I'm going to bring signs upon the nation, miracles, to let him know who I am. And he will let you go only under compulsion. But don't be discouraged because these signs and miracles are going to come to an end, and then he will let you go. But in the middle of it, it's going to feel like it's not working. But it's going to happen. And then when you come out, you'll worship me. So this was kind of a recounting before the events occurred so that Moses knew the process and would not get discouraged and quit in the middle. But then we get to Exodus 12. After all the miracles, the plagues have happened, Exodus 12, they're getting ready to go out. They haven't left yet. Exodus 13 is when they leave. Exodus 12, God is saying, now, you're about to depart. I want you to know something. I'm going to tie your deliverance to your calendar. This will be the beginning of months for you. When you exit tomorrow, that's January 1st. God thought it was so important to make sure that the calendar fit with their deliverance. And he said, every time you turn it over for a new year, you have to remember what I did for you. He thought it was so important. Now, I realize January 1st is tomorrow. Um, and there's nothing very spiritual about it. It's not like Christmas where the church has designated a period of time where we can accentuate one of the most important moments in all of Christendom. In fact, maybe the, the incarnation, Christ coming. And the church said this will be the date upon which we do it and we will have celebrations around it so we can accentuate that moment. moment. Or like Easter, where the church has set aside the resurrection, which is equally as important as the incarnation and, and, and what that means. So the church hasn't set aside an ecclesiastical moment for January 1st. And nor has God spoken and said, this will be your day that you will remember what I've done for you. So, so we don't have the church setting it aside, and we don't have God speaking it. Yet, January 1st, civically, is a really important day for us because culturally, we think, I'm going to start my diet. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to work out. I've, already, I've gone online and got my membership to Lifetime. I'm, I'm going to do it, Gold's Gym, huh, huh, this year. Hmm? And I'm glad about that. And I believe 2018 can be your best. Even though 2017 may not have been what you had hoped. God is always the God of tomorrow. Doesn't mean he's not the God of today. But hope is right there. You can hold on to it. He's got a future for you that's good. And so 2018 can be great. Now, that doesn't mean you get to define great. Great could mean I overcame the hardest year of my life. <laughs> no amens on that. I get it. That, that's what great can be. Or great can be God blessed me amazingly with resources this year. Or great could be, wow, I had this illness and God healed me with a miracle. Or great could be God healed my marriage. Or great could be, oh, my son wants to go into ministry. That's amazing. Thank you, Jesus. It worked. It worked. You worked in spite of us. It worked. It worked. It worked. I don't know what great sounds like, but I'm convinced that great is in your future. It's in your future. And so you need to look with hope on 2018. 
even though it has no ecclesiastical significance, and even though God hadn't said, this will be the beginning of months for you to tie it into your redemption, it still, civically and culturally, has an important flip over of the day. And I don't want you to miss it. Now, as important as I think January 1st is, so is August 6th. <laughs> I mean, I have to serve God well every day. And if you put so much emphasis on January 1st, and though I do want you to put some emphasis on it because all of us need to change for the better. If you put so much emphasis on January 1st, then when you get to February 1st and you haven't done anything you said you were going to do on January 1st, this generally becomes your mantra. 2019 is going to be great. <laughs> 2019, I can't wait for 2019. And in the balance of the year, you're just you again. Every day should be great. I mean, you get a fresh 24 every day to do something great for God. And I don't want to diminish January 1st, but I do want to accentuate every day after that. God thought it was so important for new beginnings that he realized his people wouldn't get it unless he tied their deliverance to their calendar. He cares about new beginnings. He cares about fresh starts. He believes that humanity needs the prompt of a calendar turnover so that we can think, tomorrow's gone. Hallelujah. But today, today can be better than yesterday. And I'm convinced that's part of the reason why God calls sleep. You ever thought about why we need like a third of our life unconscious? unconscious and it wasn't as a result of the fall though the fall has helped and, and I'm not saying the fall was good I'm saying the fall has given more reason as to why sleep is important because if man was up every hour of the day there'd be much more wickedness thank God he sleeps <laughs> there's no telling how, how bad the world would be you need people sometimes to be unconscious they can't do anything wrong. <laughs> but, but man slept before the fall. God put Adam to sleep to give him Eve. So why in the world was sleep important? Except to stop something and start something. So you didn't just flow into the next. That there was a demarcation moment where something ended and something began. God believes in this calendar thing to give us hope that whatever we do tomorrow can be better than today. Even if today was great, tomorrow can be greater. That we can be formed in his image more. That we can do more for him. We can love him better. We can honor him more. We can pick up our cross with greater skill. We could serve humanity with greater fervency, accuracy. Always tomorrow can be greater. He said to the Israelites, today will be the beginning of months for you. Today. And for these people, it marked out a couple of things that needed to change. One, they were no longer going to be in bondage. Two, they were no longer going to, to live, not supposed to live in doubt. And three, they were no, no longer going to feel insignificant. They were going to get out of bondage and be free. 
They were no longer going to live in doubt, but live by faith. And they were no longer going to be insignificant. They were going to feel the purpose of God. Seventy people went down. And for the first time in Exodus chapter 3, God calls them no longer just Jacob's family. He says, my people, Israel. First time. Meaning they have become something other than what they were. They are a group of people that I must coalesce into a purpose. I must give them significance in the earth. They've got to understand my, my, my plan for them specifically. To bring my Messiah through, to bring my order through. They aren't the most important people on the planet. They just happen to be the first people through whom I'm going to do it. Everybody else I love, but I'm going to bring my plan through them so that everybody else I love can benefit. I care about you, Israel. You get to be first. First, come to me and let me free you and change your mind about who you are. This will be the beginning of something fresh. And when the calendar turns over, just go ahead and apply whatever redemptive benefit God has done to your life and say, I'm going to have a new beginning today. You may have experienced more failure than success in your life, spiritually speaking. You may not have a whole lot of notches in your spiritual belt as to what God's done in your life. I'll say this differently. You may not have a whole lot of notches in your spiritual belt as to understanding what God has done in your life. He's that you are in this room with at least the, the understanding to be able to say amen. Many of you don't do it because culturally you think that's what they do. Meaning whoever they is. That's what the, I, don't, I don't do that. I'm not that kind of churchgoer. But at least you... Cult, you you, you have the understanding about what it means to agree with what's being said from up front, believing that it is for you. Where did that come from? Because 20 years ago, you weren't that. You weren't that. You were stuck in bondage. I was stuck in bondage 38 years ago. I never would say amen in church because it convicted me. He was talking about me. Not, not, to me, not for me. He was, he was dealing with my, I wouldn't say amen to the issues about he, no, that, oh my. Oh my, oh my, oh my. Bondage prohibits you from seeing and hearing the way you should. And for years you may have come to church or heard somebody spiritual or met somebody who wanted to talk to you about God and you shunned them. Because you didn't know what you should know and you couldn't see what you couldn't see and you couldn't hear what you couldn't hear because you were a slave to sin and you had another master and God has done the miraculous all by himself which leads me to point one the beginning which starts the end God had a whole preparation process, and some of you are still in it. A preparation process that shows his care and concern for you before you ever said yes. Before you had the lights turn on and say, Lord, I'll give you my life. My heart is yours. My future is yours. My past is yours. My present. 
I need you to fix me because I can't fix myself. Before you got to that point, there was a whole process that he was working in order to bring you to the understanding whereby you could repent. And he was doing it all by himself because you were reluctant to change. And the people of Israel, they got to see it. Sometimes we don't recognize it. It's the moment when we come to the realization of who we are, that's when we begin to recognize it. But, but rarely do we ever see what God is doing before we understand what he's doing. We just kind of go through the process and we recognize it as hard because it's kind of like coming through a, a very difficult circumstantial birth canal. And all we're looking for is to get out. But the Israelites got to see it. They got to see in Goshen what was not happening to them and what was happening to the Egyptians. I don't know how this worked. But over all the land for three days, darkness fell in Egypt. But not in Goshen. You know the sun's really big. I don't know how that worked. It was dark on this side of the street and light on that side of the street. A plague of frogs on this side of the street. They couldn't cross the road along with the chickens. There you go. Okay, it took a while. It took a while. They never had to ask the question, why did the frog cross the road? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Gnats, flies. Everything happened on that side of the road, and it didn't happen on that side of the road. They got to see it. God's bringing about deliverance for us. Oh, look at what he's doing. This is amazing. I mean, I don't want bad things to happen to them, but look at what, what's not happening to us. This is amazing. And then on top of that, he just told me to go ask the lady next door for all of her furs. And she gave them to me. I didn't steal them. I just asked, would you like to give me your mink? Yes, take it, take it. Thank you. What about your ermine? Can I have that one too? They came out. They got to experience what it was like to go through the process before they were delivered. And I want you to have a moment at some point that worships God for bringing you through a process that got you to where you are. You made it. You made it. Some people don't make it. They abandon the process. They quit. They say, I don't want anything to do with it. If God treats people like that, I don't want nothing to do with them. If that God allows that to happen, that to happen, I don't want, I'm going to have a conversation with God. I tell you, if I get to heaven, I'm going to have a conversation with him. No, you won't. No, you won't. Mm, that's, that's not the posture to take with an almighty God when you are all wrong. All wrong. And before we ever begin to accuse him of any neglect or wrongdoing, that he wasn't there when you needed him or didn't stop that from happening, please understand this, that he's the one who gave the most to help you the most. And you just forget that he, he sent his son on your behalf to pay the penalty for your wrongdoing so that you didn't have to. That benefit you just set aside because that's not most important. What you want is your circumstances to change. He cares for you like that. Recognize what he has done to get you to the point whereby you could even acknowledge that he is Lord. As, as Stephen said in the, the transition, that bus didn't hit you 
that disease didn't take you out. That supervisor didn't notice your embezzlement. (laughs) I don't know whether I meddled. There are so many things you've done wrong that you didn't suffer for. You didn't suffer for it. And do you know God can reveal anything at any time to anybody about what you've done? He can do that if he wants. That's what makes him God. And the fact that you and I have done so many things wrong and we are not in jail (laughs) or divorced or fired, so many things. My point is every once in a while, you just need, don't walk into work this way, but (laughs) you just need to lift your hands. Somebody look at what you're doing. Yeah, I'll talk to you about it at lunch. The process, that's how much he loves you. And he he then brought them out, brought them out. They no longer were going to have to be slaves to sin, slaves to anything. They were going to be free. And they had not known freedom, none of them. Their parents had been born in bondage. Their parents had been born in bondage. Their great-grandparents have been born in bondage. For 400 years, people had been born in bondage. And now they were going to learn what it was like to be free. And God brought them out. And this is the beauty of our God. When he sets us free, when he brings us out of slavery, it is for freedom that he sets us free. What does that mean? That you were brought out to never go back. It's not a one-time event. It is a continual progression into the avenues of freedom that he is setting for you, putting in, for, in front of you, so that you may go down them. Right. Now you say, well, well pastor, you know, I, 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 lo- I love this, this idea of freedom, and, and I'm not a slave anymore to, to things, and the Israelites were free, but you know, I still kind of do some stuff that I ought not do, and I still think some things I ought not think, and I, my heart is turned in ways that it... I mean, am I really free? Yes, you are free. If you have given your heart to Christ, you are out of Egypt. But the reality of what it means to walk in your liberty is going to require surrender on a regular basis. This, this, is where, this is where you get to participate. See, the Israelites didn't do anything to get free. They did nothing. God did everything. They just watched. And then they asked. And then they walked. And not only were they free, they were, they were rich. But what a thing. But afterwards, he then said, I'm going to require you to participate with me in this thing. And I'm going to deal with your doubt and your unbelief so that you can grow up and not just be a recipient of everything but be an inheritor of things that you might pass down to others. I want it not to be just a theological thing. I want it to be an experiential thing. So you got a testimony to share. And so God said, come with me in this. Let me show you what freedom feels like. Let me show you what it looks like. Let me show you what, what, it, what it tastes like, freedom. And so he brought them out and he had 10 miracles in, in Egypt. And then there were 10 miracles in the wilderness. 
The ten miracles in Egypt required no faith on behalf of the Israelites. They just watched. The ten that were in the wilderness, every one of them required faith. And they failed every one of them. When we talk about what freedom looks like from bondage, when we come into the reality of this life of Christ, we are required then to exercise our faith on a regular basis so that we might experience the freedom that he has purchased for us every day. Now, it doesn't make life easy. It just makes it easier. There's nothing about this Christian life that is easy. You still have habit patterns that you need to fix and thoughts that, that, that need to be intentionally redirected. I get it. But rather than looking at the difficulty that you experience in trying to be a really good Christian, let's put it in perspective. How hard was it before you gave your life to Jesus? How about impossible? You couldn't do anything that the Bible said. Even when you tried, you couldn't. You, you may have made New, Year, New Year's resolutions. I'm not going to do this this bad this year. I'm not going to be this wicked this year. And by, by February, <laughs> by February, you had already blown that. My point is this. It was impossible to obey God before. Now it's possible because you have the, you have the Holy Spirit. And he empowers you to do well. Yes, it's hard, but it's easier than impossible. And so you ought not be mad about it. You ought to get up every day and say, I got to, there's a possibility today. There's a possibility I could be good today. I could be right today. I don't have to sin today. I don't have to do that. Why? Because the Holy Spirit is with me and I've learned how to do this. Surrender. That's your participation. Every day, surrender. Surrender. And you get to walk in the freedom that he has purchased for you. The Bible says that if you have died with Christ, he who has died is freed. Romans 6, freed from sin. I'm not, a, I'm not a slave to it any longer. The Israelites came out and they didn't even know how free they were. They came out, got to the Red Sea. They camped. They were rejoicing in the fact that they were no longer slaves until they saw in the distance this dust. And what was what, 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 what that? What, what that looks like? Oh my, oh my, oh, oh, oh my. Oh, that's, that's Pharaoh. That's Egypt. They're coming to get Moses! Moses, Moses, Moses. We, we, got, we can't go. The, the sea's there. They're behind us. You're a really bad leader, Moses. We have to appoint a new leader, work out negotiations here with these people, go back because we don't want to die. You're horrible. You led us to a box canyon. We got the Red Sea in front of us. We got Pharaoh behind us. We got hills on either side. There's no, that's horrible, Moses. Mm, a test. An opportunity for them to experience and participate in the freedom that God had purchased for them, and they blew it. What they should have said is, wait a minute. I don't care how large that army is. God just brought us out from them without us lifting a sword. And he would not have brought us out here to kill us. So I'm going to believe he's going to do another miracle. I know it don't sound like anything. I know it sounds stupid, but plagues. Remember them? Plagues, frogs, gnats, flies, blood, water. He's going to do something else. I don't know what it is. He's going to do it, though. Instead, Moses, you're horrible. We're appointing a new leader. Red Sea opens. Moses lifts up a staff. Red Sea opens. They go over on dry ground. 
they have a party on the other side. I mean a party. I mean, they are dancing, singing. Moses, who is not even a songwriter, writes a song. It's a moment. It's a moment. It is a moment. And they are, they are rejoicing in their freedom on the other side of the Red Sea. But they are no more free there than they were on the, on the former side of the Red Sea. No more free. Are you listening to me? You get to realize your freedom on a regular basis when you submit to him and stop your doubt and unbelief and believe that even though the circumstances don't look right, my God can do something because he set me free in the beginning. And here's a passage for you, Romans 8. If he did not spare his own son, verse 32, how will he not freely give you all things? Your God is for you. And when the enemy says he's not interested in you and your future is dead, you look at him square in the face and say, not according to my word. The word of God says this about me. Now, in order to use that kind of arsenal, you needed to have read your, read your Bible every day. You need to read your Bible every day. You got to know what God says about you. And then lastly, sense of significance. Boy, these people were insignificant. Generations of slavery, that's all they knew. And God said, I'm going to use you. I didn't choose you because you were the most numerous. I didn't choose you because you were the most wealthy or the most strong. I just put my pleasure on you because I decided to. There may, be, there may not be anything about you that is super attractive to God other than you're made in his image. There's nothing to attract him to you other than the fact that you're made in his image. And that's enough. And he wants to do the extraordinary with you. He doesn't just want you to rejoice in what he has done for you. He wants you to come out, experience the freedom, believe in the process, all that he, he, he wants to do for you in terms of provision, but then become he or she that can partner with him to do something in the earth and make your life significant. These people did not know significance. All they knew was servitude. But now they were going to come into something different. I am making you my people. I'm giving you my name. In fact, you're going to be called by me. There was no group of people in the earth that could take God's name like that. They were it. Christian. Christ-like one. He's given you the most valuable thing he can, his name. His name. Live like it. And don't take his name in vain. Most people think taking his name in vain means saying it wrongly. Yeah, yes. But not only. Taking his name in vain means you identify with the name, but not with the lifestyle he wants you to live. Because the name is supposed to define how you live. You shouldn't have to print a business card and say you are a Christian. People ought to be able to notice it by the way you live. And though you need to speak about who he is and have a testimony, that ought to be backed up by a life that makes sense about what you're saying. Are you listening? And if you don't, if you don't live like a believer, 
then be careful about breaking that fourth commandment. You don't want to take his name in vain. Don't do it. Don't do it. And you're thinking to yourself, well, I won't take his name. That's not the good option. <laughs> the fix is start living right so that you can become significant in the earth. And that significance, it doesn't have anything to do with how God thinks about you. It's how you matter on the planet. It's what you do here. People of Israel, I'm choosing you through whom I'm going to bring my will to all the planet. Do something with it. Act like my people. Be a witness of who I am in the earth. Don't just sit there and do religious stuff. Serve humanity. Let people know what I look like by your actions. Figure out your purpose on the planet and do it. Significance. You are my people. This was Happy New Year to them. All of this together was what God was saying. When that calendar flips over, this is a new beginning for you. No more, no more bondage, free. No more doubt and unbelief. Believe I'm for you. And I'm going to make a difference in your life to such a degree that you're going to make a difference in the earth. Partner with me in this. Be my covenant people through whom I can do stuff.